Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. She's Carly. She's Sam. Sam, I am. Carly, Sam, I think they're clear. I think I earned that title through the writing of the book, but I wanted it to be something that would grab people's attention and get them to pick up the book and then hopefully learn by the end of it why I have chosen that title. You know, this title is, I get that it's attention grabbing, but it's also something that I mean sincerely. I'm not saying it at all in a flippant way. I think that anybody who has experienced parental abuse understands this title. And I think anybody who has a sense of humor understands this title. I'm not so concerned with the opinions of anybody else because this book is not for them. Stardom was never your dream. Whose dream was it? My mom's. I think she wanted me to have a better life than she had, but I also think her approach was very unhealthy and informed by her own lack of self-work. She lived vicariously through me. I wouldn't have written the book if my mom were alive. There'd be, I would still have my identity dictated by her. I think my mom saw my career as a way out of that life of that way of living, of that constant grind. I think my mom wanted to keep me as controllable uh, as possible. I think she really wanted to have her influence on me, and me growing up was a threat to that. I couldn't initially accept the idea that my mother was abusive toward me because my whole way of life, my whole way of going through the world was, I was operating through this lens of my mom wants what's best for me, even after she died. I'm nothing without my mom. I can't do anything without my mom. I'm incapable, I'm incompetent. What would mom want? What would mom think? What does mom need? That accepting that she was abusive would have meant reframing my entire life. And that felt impossible. I couldn't go near that for a long time. People are even more interested in seeing a former child star mm-hmm. fail, right? Like mm-hmm. I, there's like Lindsay Lohan, Britney Spears, I mean, Macaulay Culkin. Justin Bieber even, there. it's like there's the, the idea of pulling down their narrative and making them into this crazy, like, men, person having a mental breakdown. I don't, I don't understand the fascination with it. I wish that wasn't the case. I think it perpetuates whoever's experiencing probably some real mental health struggles. It makes it worse for them. I wish that society didn't do that to people. It bothers me so much. You're playing a... a- an adult's game. You're in an adult's world and you don't recognize that. You're incapable of being on that level, but you are confused and you think that you are. And I think it really leads to um, stunted personal development. I think some people are naturally just kind of good at fame, like maybe their personality type or their family history. I'm, I, I'm not sure what makes a person good at fame, but I was I felt incredibly anxious. I don't think young people should be allowed to be famous. Like right. if there's somebody who could come in and say, no, they can't, this is, they're not mentally capable of handling this. I think that should happen. The thing with former child stars having breakdowns makes so much sense to me because I think the world that you're thro- thrust into puts you right in line to have a breakdown. I definitely just did not want to be famous. I didn't, I didn't like the experience and I couldn't wait till I could just like, you know, 
put that aside. I think if it's acting, it's sort of like you're known for this thing that's not even you. So, you know, who am I underneath that? And would I be famous if it were just me? My character's the famous thing. I just wish I could have shown my 20-year-old self me now. I would have known what I was aiming for. I would have had something to hope for, something to be encouraged about. I didn't have that. You know, I put all of myself into this book, 110% of myself. And I said a lot of things, a lot of uncomfortable truths that are, I think, difficult things to say. The more uncomfortable something was for me to put on the page, the more important it felt for me to put it on the page. That kind of honesty has been truly liberating for me and has led me to a life of fulfillment and authenticity that I hope for everybody. So I hope that people take away the honesty and are maybe inspired to share some of those uncomfortable truths about themselves. You have to make contact with that struggle, I think. I really believe you have to face the parts of yourself. For me, facing the parts of myself that I felt the most shame about, facing those and becoming public with those has been really healing for me and transformative. And so I hope, I hope that people consider that for themselves. I'm proud of myself. I think I've chosen a path of integrity. And it hasn't always been easy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Today will be a review and discussion about Jeanette McCurdy's new book that she released on August 9th, 2022, called I'm Glad My Mom Died. Now, before we get too far into things, I'd like to provide a trigger warning. We will be talking about parental abuse, eating disorders, and sexual abuse. So if this subject material is too heavy for you, that's okay. This episode may not be for you. So why did I choose to read and review this book on the podcast? There are so many topics and things that Jeanette openly shares and so bravely shares about her life that many of us can relate to, especially anyone who identifies with the symptoms of BPD and has experienced abuse in their childhood. 
This is a biography of Jeanette's life in her own words. I listened to the book on Audible because she narrates it herself. And whenever I have the chance to listen to an author read their book in their own words, I love doing that. And it felt especially appropriate to listen on Audible given the nature of this biography. Also, you may be wondering, should I read the book before listening to this episode? I think that you'll still get an amazing experience reading the book even if you do listen after this episode because as I mentioned, hearing Jeanette detail her experiences and her life in her own words is something that I could never encapsulate myself. These will just be my thoughts and reflections after reading the book and discussing some topics like eating disorders and parental enmeshment and sexual abuse, physical abuse, the empty feelings we all feel inside, this search for identity that so many of us can relate to and Jeanette so expertly describes in this book, all in this really interesting perspective that she can so uniquely convey. She experienced all of these things that so many of us can relate to while going through something that not many of us can relate to, which is experiencing all of this through the lens of child stardom and the toxic nature of that. And so many of you, my listeners, may have watched her on TV and getting a view into what life was like for her as a child star, as well as dealing with all of these other things, I was full of extremely profound amounts of empathy. So before we get too far into it, who is Jeanette McCurdy? Taking this from her Wikipedia page, the easiest way to get information about any prominently known celebrity, her Wikipedia page says, Jeanette Michelle Fay McCurdy was born on June 26, 1992. She's an American writer, director, podcaster, singer, and former actress. McCurdy's breakthrough role as Sam Puckett in the Nickelodeon sitcom iCarly, which ran from 2007 to 2012, earned her four Kids' Choice Awards, among other accolades. She reprised her character in the iCarly spinoff series Sam and Cat, between 2013 and 2014, which she starred in with the famous singer Ariana Grande, after which she exited the network. She's appeared in a number of other television series, including Malcolm in the Middle on the years 2003 and 2005, Zoe 101 in 2005, Lincoln Heights, True Jackson, and Victorious. McCurdy produced, wrote, and starred in her own web series, What's Next for Sarah, in 2014, and led the science fiction series Between in 2015 and 2016. In 2017, she decided to quit acting and decided to pursue a career in writing and directing. From February to March 2020, I'm Glad My Mom Died. Her tragic comedy one-woman show was performed in theaters in Los Angeles and New York City. Plans for further dates were postponed and ultimately canceled due to the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
in 2020, she began hosting an interview podcast called Empty Inside. And now, most recently, in 2022, she's released a memoir, I'm Glad My Mom Died, describing her career as a child star and the abusive behavior of her mother, who died in 2013. Jeanette was raised in a city called Garden Grove, California, in a relatively poor Mormon family, although she ultimately left the Mormon religion in her early adulthood. Her mother, Deborah McCurdy, homeschooled her and her three older brothers. Her father, Mark McCurdy, worked two jobs. I believe they were at Blockbuster Video and Home Depot. The family lived in a very small house and also lived with Jeanette's mother's parents. In around 2000, at the age of eight years old, Jeanette started her acting career on a popular comedy show called Mad TV. She then appeared in several television series, including CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, Malcolm in the Middle, Lincoln Heights, Will and Grace, Zoe 101, Law and Order SVU, the inside, over there, and close to home. And in 2003, she acted in the film Hollywood Homicide. In 2005, she was nominated for a Young Artist Award for Best Performance in a Television Series Starring Young Actress for her performance in Strong Medicine. It was between 2007 and 2012 is when she really experienced a shot to fame when she landed the role as Sam Puckett in the Nickelodeon TV series iCarly, and it was in 2008 that she was nominated for a Young Artist Award for her work on iCarly and for her performance as Dory Sorensen in the TV movie The Last Day of Summer. She even dabbled in music and ended up moving to Nashville for a while to release a country music album. Between the years of 2013 to 2015, this is when Jeanette McCurdy starred alongside Ariana Grande in the Nickelodeon series Sam and Cat, and she came to reprise her role as Sam Puckett with Ariana Grande reprising her role as Cat Valentine. And this entire series plot centers on the girls becoming roommates and starting their own babysitting business. Sam and Cat premiered on June 8, 2013, and in 2014, Jeanette McCurdy was absent from the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards. To explain her absence, McCurdy stated that Nickelodeon put her in a quote, uncomfortable, compromising, and unfair situation, end quote, where she had to look out for herself. And McCurdy and Ariana Grande were having disagreements with the network over their respective salaries. And it was around this time that Jeanette McCurdy was accusing Nickelodeon of paying Ariana Grande more money than her. And the network placed Sam and Cat into a hiatus at this point and stated that the hiatus was planned and that the series was not, in fact, canceled. But then on July 13th, 2014, Nickelodeon announced that after only one season, Sam and Cat was, in fact, canceled. In an interview on Entertainment Pop, Jeanette mentioned that she later made up with Grande. But in Jeanette McCurdy's 2022 memoir, which we will be reviewing today, she describes incidents at the network, such as when she was illicitly photographed in a bikini at a wardrobe fitting, being encouraged to drink alcohol while she was underage by a person that she describes in the book 
called The Creator, who is essentially a really famous producer at Nickelodeon who was the mastermind behind really famous shows at Nickelodeon that many people in my generation, in millennial generation, will remember, like All That, Keenan and Kel, The Amanda Show, starring Amanda Bynes. <laughs> Jeanette McCurdy's work was a little bit past my time. I stopped watching Nickelodeon and Disney Channel around the time of like That's So Raven days on Disney Channel. The iCarly moment on Nickelodeon was similar to when shows like Hannah Montana with um, Miley Cyrus were popular. So I never myself watched iCarly, but I, my nephew, for example, was really into iCarly. I remember that. After the cancellation of iCarly, Jeanette describes in the book that she was offered a $300,000, what she described as a hush money settlement to agree not to discuss her experience at the network. They wanted to prevent any of their popular young stars speaking out against the abusive treatment they endured at the hands of this man who Jeanette refers to in the book as, quote, the creator. I'm sure she refers to him as the creator to avoid potential lawsuits, but it's pretty obvious who this man is. It is pretty clear that the creator is American television producer Dan Schneider, but Jeanette does not name him, so it's only speculation, of course. So in around 2016 to 2018 was when Jeanette McCurdy decided to retire from acting. She starred in this series called Between that ran for a couple of seasons and then it was not renewed for the third season. And she around this time came out and said via her website that she felt ashamed of 90% of her resume. And she eventually decided to quit acting and pursue writing and directing in 2017. There's a quote from Jeanette around 2018 in The Hollywood Reporter that says, I never got the chance to be cast in a project I was proud to be part of. Now I have a better chance of making things I'm proud of than getting cast in things I'm proud of. It was around this time that she decided to deactivate all of her social media accounts, delete all of her posts, and set all of her past vlogs on YouTube to private. So she was previously very, very active on social media, but she went completely dark. In the book, Jeanette talks a lot about her passion for writing. It actually started at a very young age, which she was not allowed to pursue because of her mom's kind of vicarious living through her, which we'll talk more about. In 2011, she started writing a series of articles for the Wall Street Journal. She's written for Seventeen Magazine, the Huffington Post, and some of these articles were about body shaming and a corporate culture that she perceives as smoke and mirrors. She also wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal about her mother's fight with cancer, and it details her mother's ongoing battle with cancer and how her family coped with the situation. Jeanette's mother, Deb, or Deborah, is clearly the focus of this book, and she describes in the book her close relationship she had with her mother and 
how she came to see it as abusive. She describes her relationship with her mom as the, quote, heartbeat of her life. When Jeanette was two to three years old, her mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and Deborah McCurdy underwent several surgeries, chemotherapy, and even a bone marrow transplant. It was in 2010 that her mother's cancer returned, and then in 2013, she eventually did pass away from cancer when Jeanette was 21 years old. Jeanette has revealed and been very open about the fact that she felt emotionally and sexually abused by her mom. And in an interview with People Magazine, she said, quote, My mom's emotions were so erratic that it was like walking a tightrope every day. According to Jeanette, her mom pushed her into acting when she was six to both financially support her family and because her mom wanted to become an actress herself. She stated that Deborah McCurdy was, quote, obsessed with making her a star and detailed how her mom contributed to Jeanette's eventual eating disorder by introducing her to calorie restriction at the age of 11 years old. And she also revealed in the book that until she was 16 or 17, her mother performed vaginal and breast exams, supposedly as a cancer screening, and never let her shower alone. And Jeanette said that she refused to appear in the revival of iCarly because of the reminder of her mother's abuse on the original show and that her appearance on Sam and Cat was actually just done to please her mom. Jeanette also stated in an interview that she did not receive all the payment from acting as a minor because her account was not properly filed. The cover of the book itself Of course, we know the title is I'm Glad My Mom Died and the cover of the book. I highly recommend you Google it and look it up. It features Jeanette looking up, hopefully smiling, holding a pink urn, which is used to, of course, hold people's ashes who've passed away with confetti spilling out of it. And the book is like this bright pink color. And in the book, as we will describe... It really details Deborah McCurdy's abusive and controlling influence that she had on Jeanette's life. And in March 2019, Jeanette McCurdy publicly revealed in a Huffington Post article that from the age of 11, she had anorexia. And later, this turned into bulimia. And in the same article, Jeanette describes her mom's and the entertainment industry aiding that disordered eating and disordered eating behaviors. She eventually sought help after her sister-in-law noticed the disorder and various health scares. And especially one really gut-wrenching and disturbing part of the book where she actually loses a tooth one of her back molars falls out because of the damage that regurgitating stomach fluids had from her constant binging and purging these stomach fluids wore down her tooth enamel she even details an experience of having passed out on her iCarly co-star Miranda Cosgrove's bathroom floor 
from dehydration, from the constant vomiting. And in addition to her struggles with eating disorders, Jeanette is also a recovering alcoholic. She began drinking extremely heavily shortly before her mother's death. As you heard in her own words, this intro that I compiled that you listened to, I went through tons of different interviews with Jeanette because I wanted to open up this episode where you could really hear her in her own words and try to get yourself in her shoes. And immediately when I heard the title of the book, I'm glad my mom died, not having known anything about Jeanette, I was like, oof, (laughs) that's, that's intense, right? Is she really glad her mom died? Is that the right thing to say? It's provocative, right? It reminds me of (laughs) that Will Ferrell quote. Nobody knows what it means, but it's provocative, right? And as you heard in the intro, in Jeanette's own words, I believe after reading this entire book that the title was intentionally chosen as a really smart PR move in my perspective because that's going to get clicks. People want to know what the hell that's about. And clearly it got her a ton of press, which is really smart, but I don't think that Jeanette is fame hungry, clearly, as we heard. What she wanted to do, at least what I think based upon what I how I feel after reading the book and after listening to her speak in her own words, it was, sure, if this is going to get you to click on the book, I'll have this over-the-top title that's going to make you want to know what's going on, and that is just going to get her message out there and help other people overcome the shame and trauma that she endured, and if it could, if having this clickbaity title and this over-the-top title, extreme title, can help other people feel seen and heard and get them to read the book and potentially see themselves in her and her experience, it seems like it was worth it to her. Do I think Jeanette is actually happy her mom died? I don't know if she would say that that's the case. Um, And I don't get that vibe from the book of woohoo I'm so stoked that my mom passed away but what it seemed like was that Jeanette's mom passing away that removal of that influence in her life allowed Jeanette to find out who she was and begin to heal the themes of this book to me were of deep deep parental enmeshment and we're going to go into that more another theme that I noticed so much in Jeanette's writing was hypervigilance this just constantly being aware of other people's reactions of how she was being perceived at all times and she was so hypervigilant and so on alert her nervous system was so activated all the time that it just wrecked her nerves. She was unable to explore who she truly was or even know what she wanted or what her needs were. And what I was 
overwhelmed with was this understanding of this emptiness that she described in the book. Clearly, she resonates with the symptom that so many of us relate to, which is the chronic feelings of emptiness. I mean, for God's sake, she titled her own podcast, Empty Inside. So she understands that feeling. And this book really, really details and encapsulates that feeling of being without an identity, not knowing what you want, not knowing what you need, not knowing who you are, not knowing where to go, and feeling so lost and empty that you feel what's the point. And trying to seek out fulfillment in people, places, and things, and food, and fixating on eating and other things to distract from that nagging emptiness. She does that expertly in this book. Something else that I took away from this book was the way emotionally immature and abusive parents completely neglect their duties to nurture their children as independent beings. It's easy to blame parents, but what I also took away from this book was after reading about Jeanette's mom, I was like, then hearing about Jeanette's grandmother, who was Deborah McCurdy's mom, right? So Jeanette's mom's mom and how incredibly emotionally erratic and abusive she was, it makes sense why Jeanette's mom was the way she is. And it was this really profound example of how generational trauma is passed on, how trauma presents in different ways in different people, because Jeanette's grandmother sounded incredibly abusive and awful, and that was Jeanette's mom's mom. And so it only makes sense that Jeanette's mother was the way she was. But I think we're seeing this a lot now is when people have kids, I notice how often parents just kind of like forget that this is this child is its own being with its own wants, its own needs. And as a parent, it is extremely irresponsible of you if you project your own wants, needs, and desires on this child. It stops them from understanding who they are and who they want to be. For example, Jeanette displayed such a profound desire to write. She wrote her own screenplay and showed it to her mom, and that desire was stamped out of her. And instead, her mom projected her own wish, which was to be an actress, even though Jeanette said out loud, I don't want to do this. And very early on, Jeanette learned that that was not an option to speak your needs, to lay down boundaries. And so she shoved it all inside. Another thing that stood out to me by reading this book was how in tune children are with their parents how much they want to please them especially when they're really really young and how much they admire their parents 
and how easy it is for parents to unconsciously, most of the time, and sometimes consciously, take advantage of this admiration and desire to please that young children have, and the lasting damage and pain that this causes their children. You know, when kids are little, they think that their parents are like gods. They think their parents can do no wrong. So many little girls who grow up admiring their mom, thinking their mom is just the most beautiful, amazing person. And Jeanette looked up to her mom, looked at the way her mom did her makeup, the way her mom interacted with food, and picked up on that. Kids pick up on the tiniest things. And Jeanette, expressing her needs and her desires, she saw her mom's micro-expressions or her mom's outbursts at her attempt to individuate, her attempt to be her own person. And that was smashed down at any given moment. And so throughout the book, you watched how Jeanette described how she learned to stop those efforts that she naturally had as a child to want to be herself to learn who she was and she learned that that was not an okay thing to do if she wanted her mom's love and growing up kids desperately need at a biological level their parents to love them because as we've talked before on the podcast we've talked about these biological needs that we all have children are wired to what survive first and in order to survive you need the people who your survival depends on to love and accept you and so this is how much of child trauma begins this is where it's born is how do your parents respond to your attempts these natural drivers of wanting to go out on your own to learn who you are to speak your needs to set down boundaries to say what you're comfortable with and what you're not comfortable with what you want and what you don't want what are the responses of the caregivers to these very natural things that a child will do and often parents don't understand the damage that they do in their sometimes even seemingly harmless responses to these things of a kid maybe expressing their need and saying, oh, you don't want that. Or what are you crying about? That's not a big deal, right? Even these tiny, seemingly tiny little things, kids are learning like, oh, I can't do that. If I want mommy or daddy to like me, I can't say what I want or say I'm uncomfortable with things or even things as small as parents making their kid hug people they don't want to hug right that's something that allows a child at a very young age oh give grandpa a hug all right you're gonna make grandpa cry if you don't give him a hug and a kid's going i don't want to do that these are early ways that kids learn that they don't have bodily autonomy it's not okay to say no not to trust their gut of not wanting to do things they become disconnected from their intuition And these are even seemingly small things that parents don't even recognize. There's so much unconscious trauma going on that parents are perpetuating. But of course, that 
is not the kind of trauma we're talking about in this book. This book is extreme. Another theme that came up, obviously, that we detailed in the intro of this book was the damage caused to child actors and how unnatural it is to grow up in the limelight. And kids who don't necessarily want to act shouldn't be acting. Jeanette, early in the book, describes this interaction where one of the first castings she goes to a casting director pulls her mom aside and said, you know, it's important that Jeanette actually wants to act. And Jeanette's mom says, of course she wants to act. It's her dream. It's what she wants to do. And Jeanette describes kind of like watching this interaction going, but I don't want to do this. I don't at all want to do this. And she poignantly describes the moment when this casting director makes eye contact with her when she's about six years old and kind of after this interaction with nightmare stage mom moment, the casting director looks at Jeanette and says, good luck, like good luck with this because I'm sure that casting directors like that see that time and time again of stage mom, stage parent vicariously living through their child and the damage that it causes and the stage director or casting director at that moment clearly knew that Jeanette didn't want to be there. So I took really detailed notes when I was listening to this book on Audible. As you know, I'm a self-proclaimed and proud nerd. (laughs) So I just, as I was listening to this audiobook, of course, I listened to it while I was walking, when I was cooking, while I was... (laughs) just going about my day. So I had a running iPhone note that I put all of my takeaways on. And so I'm just going to go through my iPhone notes that I wrote down as important things that I felt like my podcast listeners would want to hear from this book. So as we already described in the intro, Jeanette grew up in a very poor working class family and her grandparents lived with them and I believe this was Jeanette's mother Deborah's parents and even with four adults living at home Jeanette's mom Jeanette's father Mark and Jeanette's maternal grandparents all living in one very small house they were late on their rental payments each month. They didn't own the home they lived in. They rented this home in Garden Grove, California. And Jeanette describes Garden Grove as a town that she didn't like very much. She kind of described it as somewhat of a dump of a town. She also describes that her mom was a hoarder and a hoarder to an extreme degree to where Jeanette and her brothers had to sleep on Costco mats in the living room. Her mom would sleep on the couch. Her dad would like roll in from work and find a place to curl up and sleep at night. So there were no spaces even on the beds to sleep. And Jeanette described how much she obviously hated growing up in that kind of environment and that her mom would save everything if a mug would break her mom would put the broken pieces of a mug in a plastic baggie and save that because they had some kind of memories to her she also talks very early on Jeanette about 
being a Mormon, but she was baptized into the Mormon church, but they didn't practice very regularly. So it sounds like the family would occasionally go to church, but they didn't really adhere to all of the rules of the Mormon religion. Some really disturbing stuff was that Deb, Deborah is uh, Jeanette's mom, so if you hear that name, that's who we're talking about. As we mentioned before, she described moments of her mom helping her kids shower all the way up until they were like 16 years old. And Jeanette details one instance when she was 10 of being showered with her 15-year-old brother, Scott. So imagine being a 10-year-old girl and being in the same shower with your brother while your mom washes you. Just so weird. And Jeanette describes kind of like her and her brother just trying to like look away from each other in these moments. Deb also regularly examined Jeanette's breasts and her front butt, which apparently was Deb's name for Jeanette's, you know, vaginal region, to check for lumps in the shower. And Jeanette describes moments of dissociation. She doesn't um, say it was dissociation, but she describes how she disconnected from her body in those moments and said that she would go away into her imaginary landscapes that she would make in her mind while this happened, just waiting for it to be over. And she showers her all the way up until Jeanette, as I mentioned, is like 16 years old. And as I was hearing about these shower examinations, Jeanette never describes them as being sexual, right? And as she even mentioned um, in her own words, she doesn't really know why her mom did this. But I did find a brief piece um, of an interview where Jeanette talks a little bit about this. So I'm going to play it now. This was the hardest part of the book for me to write about. It was a really emotional experience. I laughed during the writing of it, and then I cried a lot after I, after I wrote that vignette. I've tried to understand, and that didn't lead me anywhere productive. I would just spin my wheels trying to understand my mom's motives. This continued until you were 17? Yeah. And you describe in the book that you felt violated. Yes, I absolutely felt violated, and Eventually accepting that was the most, I think, integral piece to my own healing and recovery. So it was confusing for me too, and I can't even imagine how confusing and traumatizing it was for Jeanette, but I almost wondered, there was a lot of discussion about Jeanette's mom's cancer, and obviously that's a huge focal point of the book because it was a huge focal point of Jeanette's life. She talked about how her mom always talked about her cancer she would talk about it to anyone who would listen she would use it to get Jeanette special treatment in auditions she would encourage Jeanette to tell casting directors about it um and she also was obviously pretty traumatized that it would come back she had to get one of her her breasts removed and have it replaced with an implant and I almost wonder if Jeanette's mom's examinations of her children were some kind of making sure that they didn't have any lumps, maybe this fear that they would get cancer in some way. 
Um, but obviously we will never know that. And this is com- me completely speculating because Jeanette never describes any like sexual motive behind the examinations. It was more just like something that the mom expected and needed to do. She also mentions that Deborah, her mom, one of the excuses she gave for showering Jeanette so late was that Jeanette couldn't wash her hair right. She It was always greasy. She never washed the shampoo and conditioner out enough and only Deborah could do it the right way, right? So that's another thing that I took from the book. And this is just another thing. Not only is it incredibly traumatizing and awful that this happened to Jeanette, but also just another way that Deborah ingrained into Jeanette that she didn't have the autonomy or the ability to even do something for herself as basic as washing her own fucking hair, right? So it's just this need to control this. And that's what I got from it most was this like neurotic controlling tendency that Deb had. And it wasn't really giving sexual um, charged abuse, even though I think this would still be classified as sexual abuse. And this reliance on her mom was echoed throughout the book. Even the beginning of the book starts with Jeanette describing trying to wake her mom up from a coma. And she says something in the book saying, you know, in this moment, she knew that her mom was going to die And she thought, if my mom's going to die, who would I be? Because, quote, without mom, who am I supposed to be now? Now, Jeanette and her brothers were homeschooled by her mom. This, to me, was just another reflection of Deborah's, like, control over this environment. She showered her kids. She homeschooled her kids. She wanted minute control over their every... And I split up my notes that I took on the book into kind of like early life, midlife, beginning of acting, end of acting. So as I'm going through this, these are just the notes I took throughout. She talks about in the early childhood part of her book about how much she admired her mom. She talked about how beautiful she thought her mom was and that she always caked on a lot of makeup and fake tanner and Jeanette thought that she was so much more beautiful without it and she also describes how she and her mother were always aware of and watching one another this description is a really accurate portrayal of what parental enmeshment looks like and we'll discuss enmeshment more Jeanette also mentioned she used to wake her mom up every morning at 11 a.m. with her morning tea. First and foremost, Jeanette sort of taking that parental role on, feeling like she needed to go into her mom's room and wake her up and make sure she was okay. Jeanette was always hypervigilant of wanting to make sure her mom was okay. Jeanette's mother, Deborah, also complained very openly to Jeanette when she was very young, like the age of six, about really adult problems about her dad saying oh I could have married someone so much better than your father I could have done better this highlights another 
really abusive behavior that many parents do, which is talking to their very young kids about things that are too adult for them, and also diminishing their other parent in front of the child. This is really damaging behavior, and I don't think a lot of parents understand how damaging it is in psychology when parents treat young children as adults it's called something called parentification and her mom also growing up constantly gets emotional and cries when Jeanette starts to show signs of growing up so Jeanette began seeing any signs of development in her body as a negative thing and she's hyper focused at a young age on her changing body and her mom and Jeanette saw this as you know she could book less acting gigs as a young child and Jeanette and her mom were both very small people Jeanette describes her mom as someone who's I think like not even five feet tall um and very skinny and thin her mother had an eating disorder as well and so Jeanette is also a very small person she describes how tiny she herself is even just in stature throughout the book and child actors that are small people in general they can book lots of gigs for a long time as someone much younger than they were and I think Jeanette's mom, from what it sounded like, she also didn't want Jeanette to grow up. She wanted her to stay her little girl for a really long time and also wanted her to be able to extend this child acting stuff for as long as possible. So imagine being Jeanette and being almost angry at your body, being horrified to grow up and change because it would make your mom mad. I can't even imagine the damage that that would do. And it was in these early childhood descriptions of the book that it was really clear how hypervigilant and hyper-aware Jeanette was to Deb's emotions and reactions and behaviors, this hypervigilance. She always wanted to keep her mom happy And so she had to constantly shove down her own wants and needs. And there was a part of the book that was so profound to me where Jeanette describes how she was so hypervigilant to her mom's emotions that she even knew different types of happiness that her mom would would display. So she would literally say in this part of the book, I know when my mom is happy, but I can even chop it into different kinds of happiness. And she said, mom is grateful happy when she's seen and valued and nurtured. And Jeanette described loving to see her mom in this grateful, happy state where she felt seen and valued and nurtured. And this part really broke my heart because Jeanette did anything to be the source of her mom's happiness but what you're left wondering in this book as you're hearing Jeanette describe how this six-year-old little girl just was wanting to do anything to get her mom to this version of happiness who was making little Jeanette feel seen and valued and nurtured there was no one there for her so Jeanette also talks about how Deb used to 
tell everyone her, quote, cancer story. And she would force her kids and Jeanette's brothers and her to sit down and apparently re-watch old videos of when she was at her most sick point with her cancer. And this is the first mention that we hear of Jeanette's mother contributing to what I see as Jeanette's inner critical parent, that critical inner voice. Jeanette describes that at age two, she wasn't taking her mom's illness seriously enough. So when her mom would force them all to watch these old videos of her, when she was at her sickest point with her cancer, apparently Jeanette said Deborah would always remind Jeanette that Jeanette was, quote, a little stinker and that she never took her mom's illness seriously enough. And this was when Jeanette was two years old. And so you can see how she was already internalizing how I'm a bad kid. I'm a bad girl. Wow, how could I not take my mom's sickness seriously enough? Another quote that just stood out to me and gave me goosebumps was the way Jeanette described the environment in her house growing up. She said, quote, the air in the house was like a held breath. With everything revolving around her mom and her mom's illness, and she said, quote, the fragility of mom's life was the center of mine. Jeanette described how much she loved. She seemed to be the only one in her family that loved going to church, and she described liking to go to church because it was predictable. At least that's what it just sounded like from her description. Church was a safe, predictable place. It was clean. She loved the smells of it. She also described it as an escape from her chaotic home life. And when it comes to Jeanette's father, Mark, she described him as pretty uninvolved. He worked two jobs. I believe it was, as I said in the beginning of the episode, I believe he worked um, at Home Depot and Blockbuster Video, something along those lines. And Mark, Jeanette's dad, seemed pretty unhappy with his life. He was constantly described as being verbally beaten down by Deborah, Jeanette's mother. And he didn't also seem to care much about his kids. She even describes at one point how her dad spelled her name wrong in her own birthday card. And on the other side of that, you have Deborah, Jeanette's mother, constantly reminding Jeanette how much of a deadbeat her dad is, screaming at the dad. There are descriptions of her mother chasing her father around with a knife. And Jeanette even described that neighbors used to call social services on them because of how much her mom would be screaming. When it comes to her image and sense of self growing up, Jeanette's mom started highlighting her hair and forcing her to use crest white strips and tinting her eyelashes, things like this, all before Jeanette was 10 years old. And so Jeanette's pretty clear that this started her obsession with her own looks. And seeing that her mom described saying, you're such a natural beauty. But then Jeanette 
thought in her mind, well, then why do I have to do all of these things, like highlight my hair, whiten my teeth, tint my eyelashes? Clearly, I'm not naturally beautiful if I have to do all of these things to enhance my natural beauty. So it just goes to show as well that children are so aware of these conflicting messages from parents and the damage it does, right? Because your mom is saying one thing, you're beautiful, but the behavior forcing her to do all of these beauty treatments before she's way too young to be doing any of that, sending a very different message. The next part of my notes were the description of the beginning of Jeanette's acting career. She clearly got into acting because it's what her mom wanted her to do. And Jeanette's mother, Deborah, describes to Jeanette that her mother would never let her act. And so she wanted Jeanette to act. And Jeanette had no natural desire to act. And she only did this initial audition to make her mom happy. And it's clear by how Jeanette writes about this, she hated acting. It wasn't like she kind of didn't like it. She hated it. It made her extremely uncomfortable. And it made it impossible for her to spend any time pursuing what her natural passions would have been. Because she is up at 4 a.m. in the morning driving from Garden Grove, California to LA to go to acting gigs with her mom. This is not a normal life for a young child. And it's around this time too in these early childhood descriptions of the book is that Jeanette's mom refers to Jeanette as her best friend. And Jeanette describes that as a child, that being her mom's best friend made her feel whole. And she even called it her, quote, life's purpose. It's clear, too, that Jeanette's mom didn't have friends her own age. She didn't spend time nurturing her own passions, her own dreams. She poured all of this and put all of it on Jeanette. And they spent every waking moment together. Deep, deep parental enmeshment. In these same early acting career days, this is when we also see that Jeanette develops OCD. So she mentions that this all started because she hears what she thought of as a child, the Holy Ghost speaking to her. And in the Mormon religion, she describes that, you know, people in this religion always, the people that were around her always talked about hearing the voice of the Holy Ghost. And she tortured herself about this as a kid saying, when am I going to hear the Holy Ghost? When will the Holy Ghost speak to me? And there's a point in the book where she finally hears what she thinks is the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost tells her to unlock the bathroom door five times, spin on her left foot, and do a few like OCD type behaviors. And the voice in her head says that she thinks is the Holy Ghost says, if you unlock the bathroom door five times and spin on your heel and flush the toilet three times, you'll get the role. This role that she was trying to get, I believe, in some kind of Disney princess movie. And it's clear that this is the development of OCD. 
and her mom around this same time introduced her to, quote, calorie restriction. This part of the book is really sad because Jeanette describes feeling what feels like her breasts developing as a young girl, which is a totally normal thing. And she runs to her mom because she actually initially thinks that it is a breast tumor, which is understandable the trauma she would feel because her mom obviously is battling or did battle at the time breast cancer. And so Jeanette runs to her mom thinking that she has a tumor and her mom, instead of saying, oh, sweetie, that's normal, you're just developing breasts and this is how it works, her mom suggests that she start restricting calories and if she eats less, her breasts will stop developing. And so this is when Jeanette describes that she and her mom kind of started restricting and counting calories together at a very young age. And there's descriptions of Jeanette going to a doctor and the doctor flagging to her mom that she's very much underweight, Jeanette is underweight, and the mom just brushes it off. In her mid-acting career, I would say when she's an older child, she starts to develop her love for writing. She talks about how excited she was to write her first screenplay and it's almost like a parent trap style story that she writes and she shares this with her mother and her mom instead of being so excited that her young daughter wrote her own screenplay her mom is actually sad and basically says oh so you're gonna give up acting and kind of like talks shit on Jeanette's screenplay and calls it like a parent trap knockoff. And this interaction is just devastating to see. It's devastating mainly because it's clear that you can see throughout the story and in Jeanette's life that it's her passions are naturally trying to come out but they keep getting smashed down by her mom and because the most important thing in Jeanette's life is making her mom happy rather than finding her own passion she shoves it down again but it's also around this same time that she really starts hating acting even more and she starts hating being recognized because at this point she is on iCarly and people are recognizing her in the street and it made me so devastated to hear how objectified stars are because people would scream at her on the street saying hey sam where's your butter sock or something that apparently that's like a thing that her character was known for and if she was rude or didn't want to sign autographs she would be chastised for that as well And the way she describes this just makes me feel so sad for celebrities that are accosted by people on the street. I've never understood that myself. I would, if I would see someone famous, I don't think that I would ever even stop them because they're just trying to live their life. (laughs) And it's also around this time in this midpoint in her acting career, when she's on iCarly, that she starts to say that she hates her mom because she feels like she sacrificed 
what she wanted, which was her freedom and her childhood for her mom's dream. And so it's at this point that these conflicting feelings start emerging. She is not thinking that her mom is the be-all, end-all. She starts to feel this really, this anger, justified, righteous anger at her mother, this hatred for her mom, and then which are always followed by these shameful feelings because she feels like she shouldn't hate her mom. And this conflict is really, really sad to hear as well. And the next part of my notes are all about her teen years. You know, as she develops more and more resentment for her mom, her mother's cancer actually returns. And this is when it gets really, really bad. And Jeanette, around this time when she's 18 years old, she gets her own apartment. And her mom comes over to visit her apartment. And there's a description of her mom asking to stay the night. And Jeanette describes feeling this awful feeling, saying she knows that her mom asking to stay the night is going to turn into another night and another night. And apparently, then her mom actually just moves in with her. And it's been three months and her mom is still living there, right? This is 18 years old. She got her first apartment and she still can't get away from her mother. So it's around this time too that Jeanette starts to have relationships. And it's this first boyfriend that Jeanette calls Joe. They are having to sneak around in hotels Jeanette is an adult and she can't even tell her mom that she's in a relationship because her mother is incredibly threatened by this. But what also made me sad about the fact that Jeanette couldn't really explore her passion for wanting to have a relationship with a man as an adult woman, it was also made me sad about hearing how she described her first couple of relationships because this first guy joe he was apparently in a five-year long relationship and their relationship started off as an affair which made me really sad and i also can relate to that so right away jeanette is pursuing people that are unavailable clearly she doesn't have a lot of self-worth or think you know this is not right she just wants to be seen and loved and this guy displays an attraction to her and he's much older than her and I think many of us can relate to that too of being kind of preyed upon by older guys and there's a description of when Joe and Jeanette are in a hotel and he's finally broken up with his five-year-long girlfriend and she describes performing oral sex for the first time in this scene and the way that this man just expects sexual activity from her even though Jeanette is so clearly not wanting it and she just kind of does it to gain his approval it just made my heart sink because it just goes to show how this disconnection from her wants and needs and her mother's destroying of her own sense of boundaries extends into her inability to even say no in sexual encounters and advocate for herself in moments where she feels uncomfortable she's just learned to 
what she describes as, quote, be a good sport all the time. And that was devastating. And so it's around this time, too, that her mom is starting to freak out even more at this separation because Jeanette is spending tons of time with her boyfriend, which I think every 18-year-old girl knows is like when you're dating someone for the first time, you want to spend your every waking moment. And her mom perceives this as a huge affront to her personally. She starts sending abusive texts, voicemails, emails to Jeanette, like crazy shit, threatening to disown her, even saying things as extreme as it's Jeanette's fault that her cancer has come back. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. So in her early adulthood, this is when Jeanette really starts abusing alcohol. And without her mom constantly there to help her restrict calories and do it together because it seemed like anorexia was kind of their thing that they did, Jeanette's anorexia turns into bulimia. She describes just she goes off on tour for her music career that was pretty short-lived and she's eating with the band and for the first time she's just like gobbling up junk food and her mom just attacks her for how much weight she's gained when she sees her when she comes back from this tour because when she goes off on the music tour she describes that as the first time she's ever really been away from her mom in her entire life and when she gets back her mom is just instantly shames her for the small amount of weight she's gained and this is kind of the turning point when Jeanette decides to start throwing up her food and binging and purging and it's also around this same time that she just describes this inherent distrust that she has for men and women she quickly cuts people off she quickly will develop what I like to call the ick in a relationship where she's all into some guy and they do one thing and she's got the ick and she's like I'm over it and wants to just completely cut them off and ghost them and it's clear that she's never really understood what intimacy is or and she doesn't let herself get close to people and it's really devastating to hear her describe this she also at this time starts to really be done with acting she has a strained relationship with her co-star ariana grande who is missing a lot of work on their show um that they're starring in together because she's out ariana grande's career was really popping off at that point and 
Jeanette, understandably, felt a lot of resentment because they were having to work around Ariana's budding music career. And so Jeanette was having to kind of hold down the fort, and she felt very resentful about that. Eventually, the show doesn't get renewed, and this is when Nickelodeon offers Jeanette hush money to not talk about her experience with this abusive director of the show that the Jeanette refers to as the creator. And she's feeling like the show stole her childhood, and she talks about the trauma of being famous for something you did when you were a teenager. She says, you know, when you're a teenager, these years are supposed to fade away. You kind of, the shit you do when you're a teenager is embarrassing and you don't want it just kind of like memorialized in the public record. And that made me go, man, I looked at it very differently because it's so true. Think about the stupid shit you did when you were like 12 to 16. And imagine that just being plastered everywhere and having paparazzi follow you and take pictures of you when you felt ugly and awkward and not being able to put a toe out of line because it was going to be written about. And imagine all the catty fights you had with girls and having people write stories about it. It's understandable that she would have disagreements with people in her life, and it just so happened that one of the people in her life, one of the fellow teenage girls in her life, was Ariana Grande. But teenage girls are inherently mean to each other. They get jealous of each other. They... um, Also, the network sounded like they really played these young actors off one another as well, especially this this director, the creator. He fostered this sense of resentment, and they paid these two girls different amounts. And of course, that's going to turn into really shitty interpersonal stuff. But for the most part, these things happen when we're in junior high school and they fade away. But for her, this was public And I can't imagine how awful that must have been. And it's clear around this time, too, that Jeanette is kind of in active avoidance mode. This is when she really starts drinking a lot. She's avoiding working on herself and her issues by really throwing herself into her obsession of the moment, whatever guy she's seeing at the time. And the only reason she ends up in therapy around this time is because a boyfriend tells her that she has to get help for her eating disorder or they can't stay together. And she ends up seeing a therapist that she calls Laura. And as soon as she starts to make some progress, she gets into a session where Laura starts asking relationship questions about her relationship with her mother, with Jeanette's relationship with Deborah. And Jeanette is very triggered by this and not ready to face the fact that her mom was abusive and she's very protective of her mom. And she ends up dropping this therapist because she's so angry that the therapist wants to dive into her mother's abusive behavior. So she ends up cutting this therapist off. Around this time too, this is after her mom passes away and her mom does eventually pass away from cancer in the book and after this her dad ends up getting into a relationship i shit you not with her mother's best friend karen and yes her name is karen i think i don't know jeanette may have changed names in this book 
but she finds out that her dad wasn't even actually her real dad. She finds out that she and her siblings were the product of an affair. And Karen, her mother's ex-best friend, who's now dating her dad, encourages Jeanette's dad, Mark, who's not her biological father, to finally tell Jeanette this. And it's interesting because all throughout her early childhood, Jeanette's mom was so open about the fact that she thought that Jeanette's dad was cheating on her, when in reality, behind the scenes, she was actually the one who had had an affair and was not open with her kids about this. This was just like a mind-blowing part of the book for me. And at this point, too, you're just going, God, this poor girl, Jeanette, like what, what else is going to be thrown on her plate? And so around this time too, her relationship with this guy that actually tried to get her to go to therapy starts dissolving. This guy she's dating actually ends up developing schizophrenia or what what he was diagnosed as was schizophrenia. He becomes a born-again Christian, which creeps Jeanette out because he's trying to force it down her throat. And then he ends up coming to her and saying that he believes he is Jesus Christ reincarnated, which ends up leading to a psychological break. He ends up in treatment. And then Jeanette tries after he comes out of rehab where he's more stable, they try to live together and he slides into marijuana addiction where he's not leaving the house. And Jeanette feels at this point that she really can't focus on her recovery. And she decides to go to a new therapist and take her recovery seriously. And it's through this work with this new therapist where he really highlights that Jeanette is in another codependent relationship with her current boyfriend. And she snapped out of it at this point. They end up breaking up and she's really focusing on working on herself. And in her work with this new therapist, Her therapist says to her something that I just thought was so interesting and I wanted to highlight it here on the podcast. He said, it's important that while we're in recovery from trauma, eating disorders, anything like that, that we don't let slips become slides. Don't let slips become slides. And I love this because this phrase helps us remember that We should expect ourselves to slip up in recovery. For example, Jeanette described how powerful this this statement, not letting slips become slides, was for her because she would have a really long uh, time period where she didn't binge and purge, she didn't throw up her food, or she didn't drink, and then something would happen that would trigger her, and then she would break this streak of good behavior, quote-unquote, And it would make her feel so much shame that it would bring her right back to square one. And by her therapist reminding her that slips don't have to become slides, the slide is when we inevitably fuck up, right? We fall off the wagon, we drink again, we throw up our food, we do whatever behavior is our our negative coping mechanism and break a, a streak of not doing it. And the shame spiral makes the slip up become a slide where we go all the way back down to square one and it doesn't have to be that way 
And Jeanette described how powerful it was in her recovery that she started expecting herself to slip up, gave herself permission to fuck up. And that meant that the slips were just slips. They didn't have to become a slide. And I think that's really powerful for all of us to remember. And it's something that I really took away from this book that I loved. You know, Jeanette, after reading her story, what seemed to contribute to so much of her psychological suffering was that she didn't know who she was. She felt lacking in identity and purpose. Her mom's critical inner voice became her own voice and that critical inner parent of her mother that voice that she heard drowned out her higher self the voice of her higher awareness her intuition and Jeanette near the end of the book has a quote about identity that made me just stop in my tracks and she said the years you're supposed to spend finding yourself I was pretending to be other people. The years you're supposed to spend building character, I spent building characters. It is so incredibly important that children are able to explore who they are, their wants, their needs, feel safe laying down boundaries, saying no when they feel uncomfortable, exploring their passions, finding out what those are, finding out what they aren't and feeling safe to do that. And that the people that are meant to care for them, they're meant to empower them in that exploration. And with the absence of that, what's known in psychology as this biopsychosocial model of childhood development, it's disrupted. Jeanette had what is described as arrested development. She wasn't able to successfully move through the phases of development that allow you to become an individuated, securely attached person. Jeanette lost complete ability to to know who she was. She didn't learn how to soothe herself. She didn't learn how to do that. And so instead she developed these coping mechanisms and behaviors, which turned toxic. Things that she did to stay safe, adaptive behaviors that helped her survive as a child which is making sure the people that keep me alive my parents like me all the sacrifices she made for her own survival which is actually very adaptive this is how these very same behaviors if they are continued into adulthood become maladaptive this is why so many of us with bpd or the symptoms of bpd can relate to this any behaviors that you're exhibiting now that are keeping you from having healthy relationships having a healthy life discovering who you are setting down boundaries discovering your identity it's likely that something something in your childhood Stop that from happening and that these behaviors were once adaptive for you. They once kept you safe. They once allowed your caregivers to like you. You felt like you needed to do these things to survive in your particular environment growing up. And your parents 
may not have been conscious of this because it happened to them growing up but nevertheless these traumatizing things that stop us from going through healthy developmental stages as children they're perpetuated throughout generations and that's what we know as generational trauma now the most pressing themes that emerged from this book for me that felt important for us to talk about here on the podcast were two psychological terms that I've mentioned throughout the review of this book. And these are parentification and enmeshment. And if the lines between parent and child were just a little too blurry in your family, similar to how they were for Jeanette, you may have experienced parentification and enmeshment. And as we've described before, you know, putting words to these things and feeling seen. If you listen to me describe Jeanette's experience growing up and you feel in your spirit, maybe you went through something similar, it can be really empowering to have words to describe these things. So, Parentification, what is that? Parental guidance and protection are critical elements in developing the sense of safety required to build a strong foundation within our psyche. And it's the job of the parent to make the child feel safe. It's the parent's job to provide advice and guidance for their child. And unfortunately, As with Jeanette's case, it's all too common for parents to fail to provide this due to insufficient emotional resources and maturity. When this happens, the parent-child roles often end up reversed. The child becomes the parent, and the parent becomes the child. And this role reversal is known as parentification, which can form a toxic family dynamic. There are two types of parentification. Emotional parentification is when the child becomes the parent's emotional support. This often looks like the parent sharing the most intimate details of their anxieties and worries with the child, details a child is too young to process. Children should never shoulder the burden of adult concerns. And absolutely, Jeanette describes an abundance of emotional parentification with her mother that we've already been through, specifically the way that Jeanette's mother, Deborah, shared intimate details about her anxiety with her illness, talking about Jeanette's father. There are countless instances of this. Now, the other kind of parentification is called instrumental parentification. And this occurs when the parent forces the child to undertake physical labor and support in the household, like doing housework, cooking, cleaning, or being the primary caregiver to younger siblings and take on other adult responsibilities. This absolutely happened with Jeanette. She described multiple instances of kind of having to be the one to go wake her mom up in the morning, get her her tea. She described having to take on this little adult personality of stressing out, trying to make sure the family would get to church on time and 
the biggest example of all is that Jeanette became, as a young child, the sole supporter of her entire family system and felt like she had to continue doing something she hated, which was acting, to support her family. But this can happen in other ways, like if you were a child and you had to feel like you had to do all the housework while your parents were at work, or cook or clean or care for your younger siblings. And you know, this isn't always malicious. Sometimes parents, they were a a single parent and they had to work to keep food on the table and that may have meant that the older child needed to step up and become an adult quicker than they should have. And I'm sure that there are lots of parents out there that wish that that did not have to be the reality. Not every parent out there is even unaware of how damaging this is. But it's really important that even if your parent had the best intentions, it's important to acknowledge that if this happened to you, that it could have done damage, right? It had its own damage. You probably grew up faster than you should have. And it is instrumental parentification. So when it comes to the impact each different type of parentification has on healthy childhood development, emotional parentification by far has the most severe consequences and lasting negative development. This is when children are exposed to adult material way too young when the parent like Jeanette's mother is sharing intimate details of their anxieties and worries with their children this is much more damaging than feeling like you have to take care of your younger siblings for example emotional parentification is considered a form of abuse exploitation and neglect and many experts even refer to this as something called emotional incest Parentification can present itself in many different ways. Some parents may behave in childlike ways. Jeanette describes multiple times her mom kind of taking on this baby voice. Some may confide in their child on sensitive matters that they're way too young to deal with or comprehend, relating to their child as if that they were a peer or a close friend. If this happened to you, you probably felt like you had to step up into the role that your parent needed you to fill to feel like you were deserving of love. And experiencing this would have had a devastating impact on your sense of self-worth and your idea about what love even is. But you would likely be unaware or unconscious of it as a small child. It's only as you get older that you start seeing the impact that that had on you. It's clear in Jeanette's story that she did not know what love was. She felt like she had to seek love in all the wrong places and kind of grasp at crumbs of attention and validation. And I know so many of us listening to this podcast can relate to that. It's important to remember that parentification is a boundary violation. Parentification means having to grow up much faster than you should. It means having no one to look up to or rely on for guidance. It means learning to accept that your needs would not be met and that having your own dreams and your own desires is unacceptable and even a threat to your caregiver, which is so expertly and 
profoundly described by Jeanette in her book. And as a result of any form of parentification, you would have learned to shut your feelings down. You learn to deny your innermost thoughts and feelings and ignore your own needs to avoid disappointing your parents. If you were forced or expected to parent your younger siblings, you might feel like you failed them somehow. You failed your younger siblings like you didn't do enough. And this makes sense because it's impossible for a child to fill the role of a parent. It's imperative that you remind yourself of this if this is something that you feel like you somehow let your siblings down. You may have felt guilt when it came time for you to naturally leave home, like going away to college, and you may have been left with this feeling of leaving your siblings behind, this deep guilt, this deep shame. It may have even made you feel like you were a parent walking out on your kids. And if this happened to you, this is not okay. If there's anything I want you to know if you relate to any of this is that there is no way that you could have helped your parents with their emotional and psychological pain or their dissatisfaction with their own lives. There's nothing you could have done. You might have grown up believing that it was your fault, that you were not enough, but that has never been true. If this was your experience growing up, it is still likely affecting you as an adult. You will have probably developed an overly obligated sense of responsibility in any of your relationships. You never really learned to say no or recognize when to stop giving or when to stop caretaking people. You may feel like you need to rescue people in your life from pain. And you may feel continuously attracted to partners that take more than they give. And eventually this leaves you feeling emotionally drained and incredibly empty. What makes all of this even more complicated is how difficult it might be for you to feel a sense of healthy, justified anger towards your caregivers. When you grow up in a parentified environment like Jeanette did, you may have clearly seen and understood that your parents didn't mean to be abusive and they were likely limited in their emotional capacity or vulnerable for other reasons. And as a highly sensitive child, which all of my listeners of this podcast are, you probably felt extremely compassionate towards your parents and protective of them, like Jeanette did. But unfortunately, this protective instinct might actually stop you from admitting the cold, hard truth of what you were deprived of as an innocent child. By spending all of your time protecting your parents and your caregivers and excusing that behavior away, you are yet again not protecting yourself. Ongoing psychological research has proven that this abuse is detrimental to a child's healthy emotional development, which is why this is considered a toxic family dynamic. The deep and painful wounds it leaves affects you all the way into adulthood. The behavior patterns you develop to keep yourself safe and loved as a parentified child, 
these very same behaviors make it challenging or even impossible for you to maintain healthy adult relationships without really diving into and healing this trauma. If you were forced to step into the role of primary caregiver for your parents and siblings as a child or a teen, you had no emotional support, no safety net. Most of the time, you were likely expected to keep it all together and push down your own distress, your own feelings. And as an adult, that means you will probably have a really hard time saying no, especially to your intimate partners. And you may find yourself unable to express your anger and have a difficulty trusting other people as Jeanette did. Now, the next topic I want to dive into is enmeshment, which is another primary theme that emerged from Jeanette's book that I think many of my listeners can relate to. According to the separation individual theory of 1975, babies have a natural symbiotic relationship with their mothers at birth. However, it's still incredibly important that babies develop a sense of self and learn to see their mothers as a separate entity from them in order for them to develop healthily. So if you're a parent, like Jeanette's mother Deborah did, had a hard time letting go and separating themselves from you, likely due to their own insecurities or their own unfulfilling lives, this meant that you were denied opportunities to take risks and explore and make the productive mistakes that would allow you to become a resilient human being. Taking risks and exploring the world and fucking up is so important. We have to do that in our childhood and adolescence. It helps us grow. Your parent may have sent you subtle messages of, how will I survive without you? Or don't go, don't grow up on me. You can't go, you can't make it without me. It's a dangerous world out there. These were definitely the messages that Jeanette received. If you received similar messages from your parent, this is not normal or healthy. If you received messages like this, your parents felt this desperate need to control you out of their own likely unconscious fear of being dispensable and disposable. They may have used you to fill that void that existed with inside of them due to being unhappy with their own lives and their own relationship. Doing this is using you. It is abusive behavior. And it's hard to sometimes call this abuse or see it as abuse, especially if you are the one experiencing it because the parents that display some of these behaviors seem so innocent. They seem so well-meaning. They need you. Don't grow up. I love you so much. But nonetheless, it is extremely abusive behavior. In Alice Miller's book, which I highly recommend, The Drama of the Gifted Child, she explains this as a form of complex trauma. Parents like this often feel as though if they have a baby, they'll finally have someone who will love them unconditionally, and they'll often use their child 
to fulfill their own need to be wanted. It's pretty easy to understand why it would be tempting for an emotionally immature parent to use a particularly sensitive or empathetic child as a confidant or best friend. Children like this are loving, perceptive, and sensitive. So if this was your experience, you could likely sense when your parent felt down even before they actually did. Like Jeanette so beautifully described when she said that she was so hyper fixated and hyper aware of her mother's moods that she could even differentiate her mom's different kind of happiness. If your parents' needs constantly took precedence and importance over your own, you likely developed an identity that was tailored to suit your parent, not yourself. This makes perfect sense. You were terrified of losing their love and acceptance. You quite literally needed your parents' love and acceptance to survive. So this, as I described before, is an adaptive survival strategy, which means you should never blame yourself. This dynamic results in enmeshment, a relationship where people become excessively and unhealthily involved with each other. In enmeshed parent-child dynamics, family boundaries are blurred or even non-existent. A slight switch in a parent's mood can instantly affect the entire family system. If you didn't grow up with firm emotional boundaries as a child, you'll probably struggle to set boundaries as an adult like Jeanette did. And this creates a fuzzy sense of identity that makes it hard for you to differentiate between your feelings and the feelings of the people close to you. You may feel obligated to help people. It might even feel like a compulsive need. Offering advice or help or saving people even when they don't need it or want it. And it's likely hard for you to have balanced relationships with firm boundaries. It's important to know that enmeshment is insidious, which means it's often hard to detect but at the same time, very damaging. It's an extremely toxic family dynamic because it's often explained away as love or loyalty or family unity, which makes it even more complicated and deceptive. It's important to know that if this was your experience, enmeshment comes from a place of fear, not love. A truly loving family will encourage you, will encourage their children to be independent, to be a self rather than an us. You should have never felt like there was a condition to being loved and accepted by your family, by the people that are meant to keep you safe. You should have never felt like you were your parents' only source of happiness, fulfillment, or well-being. It's important to understand that if you grew up experiencing parentification or parental enmeshment like Jeanette did, this is almost certainly not something your parents were conscious of perpetuating. These toxic family dynamics are often deeply ingrained in families throughout generations. These Patterns are passed down 
for hundreds upon hundreds of years, from parent to child to parent to child. Your parents are just repeating a cycle. It's up to you to break it, to call it what it is, develop an acceptance around it, and begin to heal. Jeanette so beautifully described how coming to terms with the fact that her mother's behavior was abusive allowed her to start healing and it also allowed her to start forgiving her mom and moving on and even even allowing herself to start missing her mom she talks about this in the book it doesn't mean we have to see our parents as black and white all good or all bad parents are complicated and that is the feeling i was left with at the end of this book is that people are complicated Jeanette's mom is not all good or all bad. She clearly suffered at the hands of her own mother. And I'm sure her mother experienced her own set of traumas that was passed down from her mother. This is the way this goes. Jeanette's mom was suffering in her own way. But Jeanette was able to break the cycle. She put her suffering out there And by putting her suffering out there, it alchemized and eliminated her shame, allowed herself to forgive herself and her mom and find who she truly was. Now she's podcasting, she's writing, she's pursuing her real passions. She's seen and heard for who she is, which is a key element of healing. So it's my hope that by sharing my review of Jeanette's book by going into the concepts of enmeshment and parentification that if this was your experience you can feel seen and heard you can start calling this behavior out for what it is in your own life you can start to heal and if this all resonated with you I highly recommend that you read Jeanette's book I'm glad my mom died highly recommend that you get it on audible it's just so much better hearing it read and narrated by Jeanette herself but I also recommend that first even before reading Jeanette's book you read the drama of the gifted child by Alice Miller because I believe it's some really good initial reading before you dive into Jeanette's memoir I think why I have so much respect for Jeanette and why I wanted to review this particular book in such a long-form way is because books like that, experiences, sharing things like Jeanette did, it helps people heal. It helps them understand the abuse that they endured, helps them put words to feelings that they've maybe been struggling with their entire lives. And that's what I do here on this podcast too, is share uncomfortable things, put things out there so that people can feel seen and heard. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I did my very best to honor Jeanette and her work and her books and also hopefully help you feel seen and heard in your own experiences. Over on the premium version of the podcast, we are still going through each step of the hero's journey. I am with my premium podcast subscribers 
we are each week now releasing a somewhat of a spiritual alchemy course that I am putting together and the hero's journey and the steps that I'm outlining in these premium episodes have helped me reconnect with my identity, with my intuition, with a spirituality that feels grounded and safe for me. And I'm already getting incredible feedback from those of you who have listened. So if you'd like to unlock those episodes, you can become a premium subscriber by clicking the link in the episode description of this episode, or you can visit the website backfromtheborderline.com and click unlock premium access. We didn't play any listener voicemails on this episode today. We'll be getting back into those next week. But if you would like to share your thoughts about this episode and maybe your thoughts about Jeanette's book, maybe some reflections and things you've realized through listening to this episode, I encourage you to send me a voicemail by going to backfromtheborderline.com and clicking the microphone icon where you can share your thoughts there. I also would really appreciate if you are not a premium subscriber, that's okay, but if you could rate and review the podcast, that helps me, it helps other people find the podcast. Share this episode with your siblings, your friends, your family, your therapist. All of this helps support the work that I do here. So with that, I hope you have an amazing rest of your week. I love you lots, and I'll see you right back here next Tuesday. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.